Welcome to Inside the Sports Car Paddock on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented to you by Cooper Tires and our dear friends at the Justice Brothers. We have four folks for you this week, starting off with our usual, the awesome, the mighty Jeff Brown, a race engineer extraordinaire, talking about a little bit of personal stuff based on a listener request following last week where we got into the various team members, how they work together in a sports car operation. Someone said, hey, I'd love to know how Jeff got into the world of race engineering. What was your path? Because honestly, it's a very different thing. There's no single way or necessarily, I would say, organized way. And so Jeff's path to becoming an elite race engineer, very much along with that program of, hey, I'm not sure how I got here, but I did. So we shared that story with us. Then we got into, since the Long Beach Grand Prix is this weekend, and IMSA's Bubba Burger Grand Prix is going to be the focus of his world, both Friday and then Saturday when the race itself takes off later in the afternoon into early evening. Speaking about setups, what do you need to do for traffic on a street course where, boy, it is not just a normal make it go as quickly as possible type mindset for a race engineer. So got into that and then also closed with speaking about how do you end up where you want to be in terms of street racing setups, really hitting that sweet spot towards the end of the stint, not just in the beginning or the middle, and then taper off. After that, we move into Greg Gill, CEO of the World Challenge Series. I always struggle to remember its full name because it's gone from Pirelli World Challenge to SRO Blancpain World Challenge GT Americas or some sort of assembly of those words. All kidding aside, spoke with Greg about shift for them. What they have at Long Beach this weekend is going to be their full GT4 field in a sprint race format instead of the usual big bangers with GT3 and their predecessors just the own World Challenge GT category that once existed that I loved and worked in for a little while. So start off with Jeff, then move into Greg talking about this weekend and some interesting policy shifts they're looking at that I criticized the World Challenge series over a couple of years ago, mentioned to Greg in private, love you, pal, but I'm not sure this is the right direction. And at least in this one regard, it sounds like they're going to change their approach. Then we close with two awesome interviews sent in by our friend, My Week in Sports Cars co-pilot, Graham Goodwin, who is in Europe right now. That makes sense since he is from Europe. Uh, but Graham right now sending two items in. First one with United Autosports team principal co-owner Richard Dean talking about their ELMS and WEC 2019 plans, plus also offering more thoughts on only getting one entry at the 24 Hours of Le Mans at LMP2. Then we close with the crazy and awesome, all kinds of fun, Roman Rusinov on rebranding their championship winning ELMS G-Drive racing effort as the Aurus 01, A-U-R-U-S, Aurus 01. And that happens to be the brand that supplies the Russian star limos for Russian premier Vladimir Putin. So great stuff from Graham as usual. So we got Jeff, got Greg, Richard Dean and close with Mr. Rusinov on this week's edition of Inside the Sports Car Paddock, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Jeff Brown, we are back for Inside the Sports Car Paddock with our traditional start to the show with you. 
you uh, feeling any pressure there being first up on deck or now since we've done an even dozen is this just old news uh i i guess old news but uh, fun news it's always it's always fun to start out and talk to you every uh every sunday monday whenever we're uh, our paths get to cross when we're not on airplanes or at some racetrack well fair enough so we had a request come in since our topics are usually driven by our listeners had the couple of great things that came into you that we're going to get to after about street racing this weekend in particular you and i will both be at long beach you'll be trying to win the race the imsa dpi race overall with the core autosport nissan on rogue dpi I had some folks asking about setup in terms of traffic consideration also setting up a car to be good at the end of a run and so we'll get to that second because we had a request come in for you to continue really our conversation last week on the different roles and whatnot in motor racing within a sports car team who comprises what who does what how do they interact kind of similar to that theme someone said hey how did you get involved jeff how did you become a race engineer and i thought that might be a really great place to start really from your start because no one becomes a race engineer first job in motor racing off you go it's usually some sort of learned or earned thing let's start where you started Sure. Um, that's, uh, yeah, you're right. You, there's a lot of people I get, um, emails from, from people in college right now. How do I be a race engineer? Well, I don't think there's really a path, but I'll tell you mine real quick, how I got there. Maybe, maybe it'll help. So I, um, my dad was a owned an insurance agency, so he was not in the business of car racing or anything, but he was kind of a car guy in the, in the sixties, he had a Corvette Stingray and he liked cars. And yeah, we lived about an hour South of road America. And so we'd go up there. He'd take me when I was a little kid, uh, up to the June sprints, which at the time was like the, the big race. Oh yeah. All the factory cars would show up, you know, the factory Corvettes with, um, half sharp and all of these guys driving. And so I, I was kind of got to see it at an early age. And then, um, at one time we, my dad, uh, my mom and dad were going to move into a new house and we were looking at houses. I was a little kid and all of a sudden this one house we went to look at, they had a go-kart in the garage and it turned out that there was a go-kart track right close to where we lived. And I wanted to buy the house cause I thought the go-kart came with it. <laughs> well, tur- turned out it didn't, but we, we talked to the family and next thing you know, I'm out at the go-kart track and we had a cart and my dad, uh, my dad was like, he's highly competitive. And he said, Hey, um, all right, let's go practice. And I went to practice and I did a day of practice and I said, okay, we can race next weekend. There's a race on Sunday. And he goes, no, 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 you're not going to race until you can break the track record for your class. So about six months later, after practicing two or three times a, a week, it seemed like I got fast enough. We went to the first, uh, went to the first race and I was, I don't know if lucky enough or I was going to, it just was going to happen no matter what, because my dad was going to make sure. But anyway, won that race and the hook was set and that was it. So then I was going to be a professional race car driver, formula one driver for sure. Absolutely. Guaranteed going to be a formula one driver. Went to school in grade school, didn't need any of this 
garbage English and math and history because Formula One drivers don't need to know that. <laughs> so, so did terrible in school. Um, this is uh, even got um, held back in fifth grade, and uh, I was terrible. But it didn't matter because Formula One drivers didn't need that stuff. So, um, racing carts and doing all of that. Finally got. Uh, high school and discovered shop class and welding and drafting and machine shop and was like oh wow so this is pretty cool you can actually use this i could actually apply this to my go-karts and my race cars and make them go faster so i got super interested in school suddenly and all the math courses were easy all the physics courses were easy it was just a piece of cake because i was i was hooked this could make me go faster Anyway, it turned out after racing cars a little bit longer, wasn't going to be a Formula One driver. Hmm. Now what do I do? Okay, well, I remember sitting one time under my Triumph Spitfire with the oil pan off, changing the rod bearings at a SCCA race when I was 7, 18, I guess, just turned 18. And thought, wow, I wish there was, I wish I had time to change the rear anti-roll bar because I know that would make it go faster. But I got to get my suit on and go drive this thing. I wish there was somebody else that could drive this thing so I could work on making it go faster. And that was it. I was like, okay, well, I'll stop driving and try to make cars go faster. And so maybe that was just a good excuse because I wasn't talented enough as a driver, but it worked for me. So so then college, well, I can go to college. Hmm. Let's, uh, what do I want to do? Why do I want to do that? For only one reason, to learn stuff to make my race cars go faster. <laughs> I'm seeing a theme develop here, Jeff. <laughs> right, right. There's a theme. So there's no, um, there was no, well, maybe I could get a job at, uh, you know, General Motors in their automotive department or, you know, designing streetcars. No, it was, if, if it didn't help me somehow make my race cars go faster or other people's race cars go faster, I didn't care. So then this was the 80s, um, like early 80s when I graduated from college. And there were no data acquisition systems really in race cars at the time. Uh, The ones that were were just the factories had some big giant recording boxes and stuff, but nobody was using it. But I could see that it was kind of coming, that this was going to be what was going to happen. And there really weren't race engineers at the time either. There were designers and crew chiefs, but race engineering was not really a, quite a thing yet. So I looked for when in college, when you, you start to have companies come in and you can interview with them and they kind of do recruiting and stuff. And I was at the Milwaukee school of engineering, which was a super intense engineering based school with lots of industry people coming to recruit the, the kids and i was looking for something that i could somehow relate to race cars Mm. and there was there was this company called dresser atlas which was a oil field company and they did logging of oil wells where they stick these tools down an oil well that's or i should say a hole in the ground that they hope to be an oil well they stick these tools down there and they record all of these different sensors like a hundred different sensors and they record it to try to figure out if there's oil in there and where the oil is and it comes out in a graph with a bunch of squiggly lines and i was like wow that's data acquisition they're just acquiring data from a hole in the ground not from a throttle position steering and brake but if i could learn this 
I might have something that nobody else has. And so did that, learned that, was able to take that into race cars when data acquisition first came in. And people in the Trans Am series, um, I got hired by a guy, uh, a guy by the name of John Brumder, who was the first guy to take a chance on me as a race engineer because I knew data systems and nobody else knew how to run one. There were these big boxes about the size of a laptop, but it would record the throttle and the brake and the steering and the RPM. And then because of my background in racing, I knew how to not only run the system, but re- but analyze what was happening and help John go faster in his race car. So that's how I got my first job in racing. And then it just pretty much progressed from there. I, um, uh, the next big step was shock absorbers. I bought the second damper dyno from Kurt Rorig yeah. that he ever built. And I thought, well, this is, this is again, the cutting edge. Nobody was taking dampers apart and trying to figure out how they worked or anything. And I bought a shock dyno from him. Well, actually my dad bought it for me and I paid him back over months and months to try to pay him back for the dyno. And I was doing people's shock absorbers for free just because, you know, my, my deal was you can send them to me. The only thing is you got to tell me the next week how they were different and where they were better and worse. And so I did lots of free dampers. You know, I would do four or five, six sets a week for people and send them out and get the information back. And I tried to get better and better at understanding dampers. And that was a thing that made me unique, kind of like the data stuff back in the day. And it was just getting you reps. I mean, and that's the other thing too, which is very important while we're talking about you on the pathway to becoming a, a young race engineer, it's <clears throat> okay. I'd love to say that I'm going to Indy 500 this weekend to engineer, you know, the future race winner. But if you can go to that club race and help someone, you know, quote, engineer their car. And if depending on the classes running and maybe the time between those sessions, you might be able to help engineer two or three different cars. And it's just a, it's really a numbers game while, while you're learning, as you're pointing out, Jeff, hey, I'm sending off four or five, six sets of dampers each week, each week or each weekend, just trying to learn myself and get data back from the folks. Hey, this worked, that didn't. It's the same thing in practice in the field of, ooh, while I'm trying to build this database to become good at what I do, the higher the frequency, it's going to help get you there faster. That, that, that was exactly it, you know, and then, And it was interesting. Then suddenly more people wanted their dampers done because the guys I was doing them for were beating the other guys. And it was like, wow, okay. Then I couldn't do it, do enough anymore. So I said, well, I'll just charge something for this and then that'll slow it down. And it actually kind of worked the other way. Then I got more work and more work. So I charged more and more and more and I learned more and more and more. And I remember going to Road America for some, I can't remember even what race it was. And it must have been a, I must have been working with some teams that were in the like support event or something like that. And I remember seeing Carol Smith. And of course, I'd read all of his books and memorized everything and read them 10 times. And the pages had fallen out. So I bought new copies of his mm. books. And. You know, and there was Carol Smith. Holy moly, it's Carol Smith, man. I wonder if I could go talk to him. No, I'm too nervous. Oh, 
there he is again. Maybe I should just go up and say hi. And oof, I was super nervous. That was like, I don't know, it would be like uh, a young race car driver seeing Sebastian Vettel walk by and you're like, oh, geez. And so I got up the courage and I went up to Carol Smith and said, Carol Smith, uh, hey, I'm Jeff Brown and you don't know me. And he goes, you're that shock kid. Huh. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he goes, you're that guy doing all these shocks for all these guys. And he says, I don't really know that much about shocks. And he said, you are really, I mean, you've got this thing. This is great. He said, hey, I'm doing a test with a team next week at, I can't remember, Groton. And I said, and he said, would you mind coming and helping me with the data system? Because I don't really know that much about data systems and maybe helping these guys with their shocks. And you and I will work together. I was like, holy smoke. <laughs> are you kidding me? I get to go work with Carol Smith. So then to fast forward, we became really good friends. And he helped me kind of guide me through the whole race engineering thing and how you become a consulting race engineer and and how you get jobs and how you um, structure your fees and how you work with car owners and drivers with big egos and all of that. And he helped me kind of get going on that. And that was pretty much it. Been a consulting race engineer. And when I say consulting, a lot of times it's like uh, you get a job you know, I worked for Team Scandia for seven years. So it's not like on and off, like every other weekend you're with a different team. I was with that one team for seven straight years, level five for five straight years. Um, been with Core for five years now. So, but I don't necessarily work in the shop every day with the guys in the shop, especially now with the internet and the communications we have. Um, I can work from home and still be full time. I mean, I, I'm in my office 10, 12 hours a day working on now only stuff for core, but um, uh, still, you know, kind of a freelance consulting engineer for, for a team like that. I mentioned to, I believe it was Paul Tracy, however many years ago, that it's phenomenal to me how, through his IndyCar career, I believe he drove, uh, represented every major tobacco company involved in the sport. And it was Marlboro. It was Brown and Williamson with cool. It was mm -hmm. players. I might even be forgetting another brand. I love yeah. the Jeff Brown <laughs> angle of folks you've worked for. We don't get into all this here and you know, it's just a fun thing. I've mentioned it to you, but the fact that you worked for many years, many years, for both Andy Evans, uh, a person who at least externally uh, is still waiting for lots of positive things to be said about them, uh, and those things are a bit of a rarity. The right. fact that he worked forever with Andy Evans, someone who's generally hated by so many, and then you also have a really long stint with Scott Tucker in Level Five. You know, I'm not saying it's that that PT kind of hey, you've you've ticked all the boxes, but you know, right. maybe right. there's some other uh, scandal laden and or just unloved team owners that I need to learn about. But all I can <laughs> say is you're clearly an angel because it wasn't <laughs> like you were there for six months and there was a big blow up. No, you you were you know part of the furniture, man. The you, whatever you yeah. do, it works, and you can get along with anybody. That's a yeah. And I'm mentioning wow. this as a little bit of, of comedy here or humor, 
But we shouldn't underestimate that that ability to work for and with folks who might not be, some might be jerks, some might be just uh, bad people, all kinds of personalities, that if you want to have a long career in engineering, which you have, you have to have a personality that can bend, fit, slot in without uh, being too reactionary to the, the character or quality of the person that you're working with. There's some folks who I've seen, and I, one of my mentors, brilliant engineer, wouldn't does just never suffered fools and has worked for more teams than anybody because he's good for about a year and a half, maybe two, and then gets fired because he pops off, says something, rubs someone the wrong way, pushes back, calls the guy who is an idiot, an idiot, and then, like an idiot, gets fired. So you, you, your way of doing things works. I just love the fact you've racked up some long tenures with folks You're like, whoo, boy, Jeff, wow, good on you. Wow. Well, you, and you bring up a fantastic point that a lot of young engineers, I think, miss is – Race engineering, I've always said that race engineering is capital, big, you know, 40 font race and little eight font engineering because it's you're there to race. Your job is to make the car go faster and whatever it takes. And if that is um, doing things for the sponsor or having a dinner at night with a car owner when you'd really be back rather back at the hotel looking at data or talking to your uh, drivers or I mean it's really whatever it takes to make the car go faster and I was fortunate enough to have so you know so maybe some of those guys and I didn't really care what Andy Evans did or what Scott Tucker did what I what I cared that they did is give me the budgets the talented people the technical freedom to do it the way I thought it should be done and the resources to carry it out and the directive to make them and their teams win races. They were super, those two guys and even many other car owners, John Bennett, the way right now, um, Tracy Crone, who I worked for for four years, uh, those kind of guys were super committed to winning races and gave me the resources and tools to go do it. And man, from an engineering standpoint, um, you can't ask for anything more. A lot of guys are saddled with car owners and people that have, I don't know, kind of conflicting or unclear goals. And, you know, the guys I've worked for over the last 20 years, basically probably four people over the last 20 years have been ultra focused on one thing and that's winning races. And, that's like, you can't ask for anything better than that. So to wrap here, your pathway, not unfamiliar by any means, you drove, you were able to learn. And I realize we're talking lower level, but regardless you drove, that's something that while there are some very successful race engineers who have never driven a race car, it's one of those things that if you're going to be a basketball coach, you want to have bounced a ball a couple times, <laughs> hoisted up a couple shots, at least get it through the rim once or twice. Yeah. Um, if you want to be a race car engineer, it is not mandatory, but I'll just say it's mandatory. You will have yep. needed, you absolutely want to know what it is like to drive a vehicle around a motor racing circuit, 
to succeed, to not succeed, to try things. Hey, I'm going to go out and put in an extra three PSI in my front tires and see what it's like and see. And then you find out, oh, it's an understeering pig or again, who knows, but to try and dabble. Those are the same things you will be doing when you're on a timing stand or whatever else, uh, wherever else you might end up would also say that the mechanical side is very important. You will find more race engineers, uh, well, older race engineers, some of the younger ones. It's really fascinating to learn the different ways they've come in, but you look at a lot of the race engineers have been doing it for a while. And I don't want to say they've necessarily been mechanics, before they got there, but in many cases they have and, or their personal cars, there's something where I understand not only how to assemble this thing, but understand the systems, how things interact with one another and relate how, if I make this change here or just that, how it's probably going to impact something diagonally across the car being someone who, and this is, I don't want to say more advanced, but it's definitely a benefit as someone who owns and has owned his own setup pad for a really long time, boy, it's great if you can roll your street car on or a race car, whatever, actually sit on a setup pad, look at the numbers of what it's telling you about the corner weights and to understand how the changes that you will make in ride height will work, what, what things look like when you forget to disconnect the anti-roll bars. When you get onto the setup pad, go, Oh, oops. Oh, well, hold on. Let me write down the numbers of the, of the corner weights, then disconnect the bars and go, Ooh, okay. Now interesting. That's why you always disconnect the bars first and make sure that you zero them, um, before you reconnect them. And just some of these experiential items that don't involve being on pit lane during a, a track session, but actually turning wrenches, understanding the vehicle systems and basics, getting onto a setup pad and playing tweaking really easy to get things wrong. Sometimes you need a veteran like a Jeff Brown or otherwise to help get you kind of to back out the mistakes that you made. But some of these things certainly help the math. You mentioned the physics, the educational side, the ability to write, to be a good word writer. You'd be amazing. Jeff, tell folks how much time you, you spend after a race writing a report that goes out to drivers, team owner, your engineering staff, then also the pre-event uh, material you'll write. It, it's yeah. ridiculous, right? It is a lot of, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot. I mean, um, this is going to sound, this is uh, maybe a kind of a new event, but the first two days in my office after a race, well, the first thing I do is race day when i get back to the hotel and i'm usually flying out the next morning i spend about three hours after the race writing what i call it my my technical review and it it has no numbers it has no data it has nothing it's it's an excel sheet with about 20 blanks and 20 lines and headings for each one camber caster toe ride height arrow track grip track uh bumps, um, uh, TC, all the things. And and I just start writing and, and it's, it's so that I can read that report next year. And it brings me right back into the moment. Why was I thinking this way? Why was I doing 
you know, camber. We changed this camber and the driver said it did this. And, oh man, I wish I would have tried this or I should have started here or I did this, changed the camber because I wanted this to happen and it didn't happen. And so I can put down the notes of why I was thinking what I did and why I made those changes. And I nail that immediately when I get back to the hotel from the race, when the race is over. And then when you start back in the office, either usually the next day, a travel day, then the next day. And now it's, now it is, this is unfortunate, but it's two days of BOP analysis. Our car compared to other cars, compared to our performance, compared to their performance and their stint lengths and their used tire link, uh, performance and da, 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 all of that. Um, and then I start into all of the things that we need to do from Usually it's the race coming up. I got to get a rough setup to the guys so they can build the car. We call it a build setup, which is like what geometry we're going to run, what gears we're going to run, what gear box we're going to run, what dampers I want on the car. Not the specific maybe springs and ride heights and things yet, because I still need to work those out after we get after I get some of the simulation results done. But the guys need to start, they're taking the car apart and they need to start putting it together with the proper components for the next race on it. And then back to the reports again, uh, databases of all the changes and reports to the engine people and the gearbox people of what we did, what we changed, all of that. Um, My uh, assistant engineer, Tyler, is working on mileage reports for um, the crew chief, Ian, who has to log in how many miles each wishbone, each axle, each gear did. Um, so all of that's done. And, and that's, and then you start into the prep. So that's three or four days, let's say to finish up a race weekend. Then you start into the test plan and the tendency preview of what you expect to happen for the next race and the, um, parts and pieces that you need alternate diffs and alternate shock absorbers that you need built and all of that stuff. And you got to come up with all of that and a, a test plan for the simulation because we'll run simulations between races. So that's almost like a whole nother event. So you write a test plan and we're going to try th- these 12 changes in the simulation. Then you get those results back and you got to decide which ones you really want to try in the race weekend. And write your test plan. And then I do a big driver briefing PowerPoint, which is 30 or 40 slides that I do with the driver on the setup day, which kind of drivers get the complete briefing on what we're going to do, why we're going to do it, what changes we're going to do, all the things about the track um, from where the pit cones, speed limit cones are to um particular tricks about the track to where we are in pit lane and who's ahead of us and behind us and all of that. So that briefing gets done and then we show up on setup day and away we go. As my cat Rocky just joined the conversation to tell us that he wants to be fed, even though it's an hour and a half early, buddy. Sorry, pal. Gonna have to wait a little while. So first of all, you just answered the question as to why you are so frequent uh, in posting of coffee grinding and general coffee that is being produced. That is to keep you up because you are writing uh, so many reports, preparing so many things. And again, reports can be things that happen, things that are coming up, 
could be in the form of that PowerPoint that you mentioned. There's the data entry, right, of your of your database. And yeah, again, this is for folks who want to do this on a truly professional and exceptional level, there is a little bit of a grind involved. And oh, yeah. it isn't, you know, it is more often than not uh, when you're away from the track for sure, having to sit in front of your laptop or a keyboard, whatever, and typey type, typey type, 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 type. And you, although we love Rocky and want to feed him, um, having Rocky meowing and bugging you or the kids saying, dad, play with me, or uh, please go fix the uh, garbage disposal that exploded to think and process and do these things, you often need to try and wall yourself off a little bit. So that's, it's great if you're single. Uh, It's just more of a challenge if you are husband, wife, whatever it is. Uh, So there's that aspect too. And, you know, again, this, the ability to make cars go super quick on a racetrack, that's the byproduct and end result of a whole buttload of preparatory work and skills one of them being underpinned by the ability to write and write that concisely and to convey your thoughts uh, so you can digest them when you need but also to share that with your team and whatever whomever is going to be uh, receiving these reports so that's a big aspect as well so it comes back to the education side and you don't necessarily have to go to university to learn how to do all those things but uh, you will need to have those skills for sure what else should we tell folks, uh, Jeff, that if you want to get to be that and follow this road of learn the mechanical side, volunteer, repetition well, certainly helps, uh, learn learn good word writing and data mm-hmm. entry skills and such. I mean, that's, you know, some software skills. I think most people have that today. Uh, what else should we tell folks? I think the last thing, because I get that questions from, uh, people in college about ready to graduate and they want to know how to get into racing. And, and, and the advice I always give is today, most places, especially in America, we're not designing race cars. Most race teams aren't designing race cars. So there's a few places that you can go in America where there's design work being done, but that's more rare now. Um, so if you want to get on a race team, what I always recommend is race teams, most race teams don't have training kind of programs. Like we'll bring you in and we'll teach you for a year and you won't really help us at all for a year until you come up to speed and then you'll start being beneficial a year from now. Most race teams where you're going to get an entry-level job, need you, you know, you're hired. You walk into the shop the very first day, they hand you the laptop and the download cable and say, that car over there needs all the sensors zeroed. And for some reason, the left front pushrod load sensor is not working. I don't know if it's a problem with the wire or the strain gauge, but figure that out and configure the laptop so that all the MoTeC data works properly we're going testing the, the cars being loaded this afternoon. So have at it. And that's what you have to do. You have to produce immediately for these race teams. You have to be effective for what they need to get done. So how do you do that? You have to understand a little bit about racing and whether that's like you said, Marshall, 
um, volunteering uh, at a SCCA level, or I don't care, a chump car level at the go-kart track or running your own cart or anything like that so that you're a, quote, racer. Uh, a lot of teams are hesitant to hire kids out of college who don't understand the long hours and the grinding and the drudgery and the uh, no weekends off aspects of racing because <clears throat> they don't want to hire a guy and he bails out after six months going, well, I can't even go to a movie with my girlfriend, you know, and no, he probably can't, but. And Hey, he by won't. the way, here's a first class mm-hmm. ticket to the next event in the fourth and final row of the Ford van. Uh, <laughs> no. And I realized that the place we're going to race is many states away it's a thousand plus miles guess what it's a right. lot cheaper to throw 250 dollars or 300 dollars of of gas round trip to get there than to spend 2500 dollars on plane tickets so guess right. what Ho- enjoy the back of the van uh that's, that's a, right. you know again it, we're talking indycar teams we're talking well, imsa teams you know granted uh absolutely. in some cases teams can look forward to getting on that flight and you know obviously going from Indy to California this weekend or Florida to California, there's certainly flights involved, but yeah, I mean, there's as someone who's behind just became absolutely flat, like everyone else's from just sitting in vans for Lord knows how long driving around again, there's the glamor and we joke about this. Oh, we just do this for the glamor. We it's being said with the highest degree of sarcasm because for the most part, especially when you are, younger or building your reputation yeah yeah there's almost a let's see how let's see if they really want to do it let's see how much you know we can burn them out with the monotony and the lack of glamour and if they're still here then they really want it then they're the guy exactly you know i i just it just kind of dawned on me it kind of comes around to where we started this whole conversation i and it was not a big master plan or anything but the reason i was fortunate enough, lucky enough to get hired by people is because I had a couple skills that were unique. You know, I could do data before a lot of people could, and I could do shocks and understood them before a lot of people could. So I could actually help make race cars go faster for teams right away. And that's what I'm kind of saying right now. It still applies. They need you to make the cars go quicker and understand what racing's about. You know, 15 years ago, people, uh, I would say, okay, the one thing you for sure you got to do in college is make sure you're on your Formula SAE team and be good at that because people will look for that. That will make you stand out because you've been on Formula SAE. You know the long hours. You know how hard, hard it is to do Formula SAE and still maintain your grades in your normal classes. And, and that was a thing that made kids stand out. Um, with potential race teams now unfortunately it's the baseline you just have to have that it doesn't make you anything special or stand out from any other of the five thousand or ten thousand kids that also did formula sae so you need to look for you know something that makes you even more special or more able to help a race team on that first day Formula SA is great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that is, you're going to learn a lot. It's going to be hard. You're going to take a hit in your grade point average for sure. Everybody in racing understands that, but now that is almost like the price of just admission into the contest to get a job in racing. 
Well, why don't we, Mr. Brown, move to our final topic, one being topical, heading into Long Beach this weekend. Let's discuss. So you're going to set up your race car to deal with a lot of traffic, and that isn't specific to Long Beach or street courses. You can certainly uh, head to a natural terrain road course, even an oval, I'm sure, and deal with plenty of traffic. But since we have had folks say, hey, when Jeff is heading into a race weekend, could he give us some insights about what's unique from an engineering and setup standpoint there? Uh, Definitely the topic of not necessarily maximum attack crazy speed uh, come that 100-minute race Saturday evening, but uh, (laughs) dealing with traffic and then also maybe just uh, setting up a car as well to handle in traffic, uh, but also to peak towards the end of a stint. Those are two big things, but now not a two hour and 40 minute, 10, 12 or 24 hours. You've got less than two hours to make that happen. Ooh, yeah. It's, it's always a shock. Um, going from a 24 hour race to a 12 hour race to a hundred minute race. The third race of the year is always like, Oh, and things are going to happen fast and you're going to be in traffic every lap. There's never, there's never like, uh, Oh, well, we've got a clear lap or we've got two laps clear. It will never happen at Long Beach. So there's some things from the setup standpoint that we can consider things like, um, you know, the easy things you always hear it in Formula One and IndyCar, same thing happened with our sports cars. They're very aerodynamic dependent cars and you get behind somebody and you lose front downforce. So the car is going to understeer. So, you know, you'll try some things like, you'll see cars running maximum front downforce things with like dive planes and big splitter extensions and anything they can do to, to make front downforce because that turbulent air off the car you're following is not very downforce producing. So you need to stick more tabs and anything you can there to try to gain that downforce back. Um, you may even run less rear wing to try to get the balance back because you know you're going to be in traffic all the time, not have as much front downforce. So you may run less rear downforce just to get the, the balance of the car right. Tip the center of pressure, yep, further exactly. where, you want, where you need it. Exactly. And then other things that are kind of secondary effects, but um, even things like gearing. You know, you know, you're going to get bogged down in corners because you're going to catch that GT car in the Queens hairpin at Long Beach at the wrong spot, right? As you enter that, and you're going to have to be, you're going to have to, you're going to be four miles an hour slower than you would be if he wasn't there. So then you you will actually make gearing choices based on the fact that you're going to be in traffic for a single lap. The gear might be right, but for the other, you know, uh, out of a 70 lap race, 60 of those laps you're going to be in traffic in that hairpin so you need a different gear there to get out of that than you would in qualifying or on a clear lap um same thing with brake ducting and radiator cooling um you know you get behind cars and you're behind them all the time you don't get as much fresh air into the radiators into the brake ducts so you're you're ducting blinking changes which changes your aerodynamic drag which means you might have to take some wing out of it to get the same same top speed that you need. Um, traction control changes. Uh, coming off of a corner behind a car when you're bogged down and you're slow, you're going to need you, you're asking for more grip and more 
Um, you know, you're more likely to spin the rear tires, so your traction control strategy might change. Your spring choice might change because you need that extra grip coming off the corner. Breaking into corners when you, you know, it's one thing to pull out and try to outbreak a prototype who's going relatively the same speed, but to pull out and have find that right in front of you, there are two GT cars battling themselves and they're side by side breaking into the corner in their own braking duel and you're catching them and you can't pass them because they've got the whole track blocked because they're too wide in the middle of the corner. Of course. You, yeah. And you now have to slow up an extra five miles an hour than you normally would because the GT cars aren't as quick and they're racing each other. So suddenly your, your brake braking ability in traffic becomes huge and you might run different bias, different cooling, different master cylinder sizes, even to, to get the braking that you need if you get surprised by a GT car. So, and we haven't, if you, we can talk about strategy too, you know, with traffic, but those are just the setup items that we would, you know, that you at least need to consider when you run in a, a street race, Long Beach, Detroit, or a big traffic e-race. I'd say the underlying mindset that I've always had, Jeff, when it comes to a setup on a street course and drawing from this traffic, you know, it's going to be there. How do you deal with it? How do you give your drivers what they need driver or drivers, what they need to succeed without hampering outright performance? To me, I think of trouble. So really when I'm talking about what am I going to do for springs, anti-roll bars and ride heights and just everything, obviously you tend to deal with more bumps, uh, awkward transitions. So, you know, the car is going to be sitting up a little bit higher than is maybe aerodynamically uh, optimal, uh, and so on and so forth. But really when I'm thinking about what am I trying to give my driver, it is trouble avoidance and surprise reaction. Uh, so yeah. it's not just, Hey, there's a bunch of cars. How do we get around them? It's as you mentioned, what are they doing? Why did you break that early? There's no reason. And all of a sudden your driver, <clears throat> uh, 15 or 20 feet earlier than the norm is having to climb on the binders and Holy crap, hold on to the thing. And if you were to spring the car, set it up, if you were say for qualifying where you have by and large the track to yourself, if you're having to jump on the brakes out of panic or of dart hard left or right to avoid something with a setup qualifying on the car, you're probably going to spin and be in the wall. Uh, so come the race and this is just a generalism, but come the race, you really are having to think of my guys are going to get uh, scared. They're going to be a couple of code Browns for sure during this race because of some crazy thing someone else did that you would never expect and there's no reason for but if i don't take account of that and accommodate somehow in the setup so that the way when they do have to take avoiding action jump on the brakes whatever the car is not so stiff or or overreaction that it's going to pop out uh, right. and go around i mean that's you know ultimately i think a lot of what happens with race setups on street courses Absolutely. And, and, and I think it's, it's different than like, okay, so we're going to be there with the Indy cars. Their, their considerations will be slightly different because they, 
they don't have, you know, it, it would be like, think how their considerations would change if they decided to run the Indy Lights race and the IndyCar race together. <laughs> yeah. And, and then they would be passing the Indy Lights cars on a routine basis. And that's essentially what we have with the GTLM cars and the DPIs. I mean, we're going to be passing those, we're going to be lapping those guys every 10 laps maybe. And so we, and they're racing their butts off factory drivers. And I mean, it's a big deal to win those GTLM races. And those guys will not give a DPI car a break if they're battling, if it costs them a 10th of a second on the car that they're trying to race to give a DPI car a break, they will just block that DPI car into the corner and you can't get by. And then you're stuck all around the fountain corners behind two GTLM cars. And now the DPI car you were racing is caught right up to you because that three car length gap you gained the lap before is just evaporated because these GTLM guys are blocking the heck out of you because they don't want to get passed by their own guys. And it becomes it, it, you know, we will actually set the car up so that we can pass GTLM cars better because that will get us a better result. I love it. I love it. Well, why don't we save the, the strategy bit maybe when we're getting ready for Detroit, but let's, let's close here since this was a topic and I don't want to keep pushing them back. It was one of last week's topics, uh, on, uh, from a long beach standpoint, maybe, chassis set up for the race to make sure that at the end of the limited number of stints in this very short hour and 40 minute race, uh, setting up a car to peak towards the end compared to being the winner of the first five laps of the stint and then screaming and struggling and cursing at your race engineer for the rest of it. Right. Right. Well, and, and, and that actually comes down to as much the driver as it does the race engineer and being on the same page. Um, you know, you'll actually look at the strategy and decide when this race is going to be, when it decide when it's going to be decided. And one thing you have here at Long Beach is that it's so hard to pass that there could be some thought given to the fact that if you can get ahead of that guy, when your tires are good and maybe his aren't quite as good, then maybe you can hold them off. The other strategy and, and it goes to the setup work too for late in the race is, well, if I have better tires than he does at the end of the race and he's used his up to get ahead of me, I can pass him easily at the end of the race. So it's interesting to see how these races are decided because if, if you're set up for a short run to get to the front and then try to stay there you'll have other cars that are set up for a long run with better tires at the end of a run who might be trying to pass those guys. And so how would you do that? You want to save the rear tires is what it comes down to because you're accelerating off of these slow corners. The front tires are not much of a problem from a wear standpoint and from a, from a over usage standpoint. So you're accelerating off of eight or so corners, every lap hard and it uses up the rear tires. So your, your traction control strategy becomes a big thing. Your um, driver modulation himself, uh, how hard he's using the throttle, um, when he needs to use the tires and when he needs to save his tires, how he cools his tires off. Maybe he takes a lap or two easy and then he uses them real hard. 
at the end, your spring choice, how hard it loads the rear tire and uses it up. Um, your aerodynamic choice, how much downforce you put in it, or do you run less downforce and slide the rear tire and maybe overheat it? Um, but it doesn't matter because you're fast on the straightaway and they can't pass you. But maybe the guy takes a lunge because he has a lot more downforce and it breaks better because he uses that drag and downforce to pass you. Um, there's a lot of considerations in setup for how you're going to finish this race and how you're going to win this race, whether you're going to do it, do it early and try to hold them off or do it late and be better at the end. Um, I don't think there's a right answer. I know for sure there will be different answers and that's, what's fun to watch is see how it plays out in the first part of the stint and see how much it changes at the end of the stint or end of the race. Well, as you just heard, I need to apply some more JB 80 to my chair that was creaking mightily there. So apologies, <laughs> Jeff, this is, I mean, we can do this all day. That's the thing you and I yep. love talking about engineering. You and I just love trying to answer folks questions in this discipline of the sport that has meant so much for the two of us, you, it's been your enduring career for decades upon decades it was a eh, not super long part of my portion of my career but something that i love and still love so but we should let you get back to work because you are stopping work i know you're you're living the high life there in a hotel in burbank right now coming in yep. from a weekend engineering in sebring of all places but correct let you get back to work so your core team can do well what i don't want is your team owner john bennett sending a drone strike in my direction because I was taking time away from you <laughs> helping them to your boys to hopefully uh, have success this weekend. But thanks as always, my friend, and we'll look forward to speaking next week and grabbing some more great topics. Be sure to send them in and we will get to them as quickly as we can. It's fantastic. I'll always love it, Marshall. Let's do it again next week. Um, I appreciate it. And we'll see you in a few days in Long Beach. Greg Gill, awesome to have you back. Also awesome to have something brand new for the Blancpain GT World Challenge Americas series. Did I get that right? Because I usually get it wrong. You got you got all of them in. Well done. What? How crazy. Well, I love the fact that changing things up a little bit, instead of it being the regular and longstanding diet of GT cars coming in from, or GT3 base, but basically the world challenge big bangers if you wanted to call them that we have the they're they're younger younger brothers and sisters in the form of gt4 coming to long beach here in a matter of days tell me about that decision where did this twist on the theme come in we found a lot of the gt3 drivers and some of the established teams like kpax very concerned with the crash damage that they got at saint pete mm. and long beach and there, you know, each year it was a concern. And of course, each year you would argue uh, two of the largest races on the calendar and you don't want to miss them. Uh, but they also got tired of, of you know, multi hundred thousand dollar repair bills. Uh, and when you're running the multi-car teams, it was it was an area that we put to the teams last year at Lime Rock and said, as a GT3 team, where would you not want to race? And almost universally, I want to say, you know, 80 percent or so of the of the grid said, you know, we can live without street courses. 
And we on the same time as a business cannot live without Long Beach. Uh, it's, you know, we're in our 30th year. Long Beach is 45, I believe. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can't imagine doing business without them. So it was a natural last year we did the small GT3 field with and added in, I think, seven or eight GT4 cars. Yep. And we introduced it. And, of course, you know, people like Black Dog and others are no stranger to, you know, racing at, at Long Beach. But there were many others who it was something that it really caught their attention. So I think now with the GT4 grid that we have and the entry list that we have of 21 drivers, I think it's going to be a treat because we go old school, what everybody knew World Challenge for, single driver sprint format. No driver changes, no fueling. We're here. Let's get this thing done. 50 minutes. It's a drag race. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I, I'm particularly excited about the quality of the drivers that we have. And I share in your enthusiasm for that, Greg, because... This has been a long time celebration each year for World Challenge to come out to the West Coast for the street race, support the overall Long Beach Grand Prix. Tends to be some fantastic racing because of the general mindset. Shorter race, it's not the endurance format like we see with IMSA when they come when they come out, even IndyCar with roughly two hours worth of competition there. Not saying that you have folks going psycho and saying, okay, yeah. let's destroy our GT cars, but just there's a little bit of a different mindset of, okay, we're not doing driver changes. We're not doing refueling. It's hardcore from the green flag to the checkered flag. I'm fascinated to see how this plays out as purely a GT4 event, though, knowing that we have a pretty cool mix of cars, right? From the Panos, Avanzano, the Sin R1, McLarens, Porsches, got a KTM Expo, of course, Chevrolet Camaros, as you mentioned, uh, Ford, what else? Uh, Porsche 719, Cayman GT4 CS MR. You might need to find them for coming in with that long of a vehicle name. BMW as well with the GT4. There's just a lot of diversity here. GT4, yeah, GT4 R8 even. So uh, it, uh, it, it just uh, an excellent combination of cars. And it's going to come down to like you and I were talking earlier about the Barber IndyCar race and not to step on, on the results there. So I won't say anything, but we know, you know, how you qualify there. Uh, is a lot of how that race is going to work because it's tight, difficult to pass, and you know, and unforgiving if something goes wrong. And I think that could, same thing can be said about Long Beach. So when you look at it, it's going to be you think on one hand, oh, the Mustangs and Camaros are going to have an opportunity. Well, these McLarens have been tuned up. You look through the cars, and I can't see a vehicle based on the performance we've seen so far in the first few rounds that has a distinct advantage nor a distinct disadvantage. And that leaves me a little nervous. It's like, wow, what's going to happen here? It's really going to come down to who gets the perfect setup. And uh, it's going to be an exciting race. Let's talk about a couple of the aspects here, Greg, that I think will end up playing a role in the final results. First of all, we don't have the standard GT slash GT3 driver rotation, which by and large, fully professional. So with GT4 right. being exactly what it's meant to be something that is grooming in theory for those to jump up to uh gt3 at least you know uh, how the the structure tends to work we get a right. more of a heavy leaning on the pro am than than full pro you can look at the driver's list and there are certainly some great pros in there regardless yeah. of whatever their driver rating might be 
no one would argue with Shane Lewis, Spencer Pompelli, uh, Matty Brabham, right? Great to see yes. Matty back. James Sophronis yeah. has been driving forever. And, you know, again, we can, Michael Cooper, there's all kinds of super high quality guys who would be perfect in any manufacturer based, uh, GT racing, but there's also some really good AMs too. And some who are still learning what kind of coaching, what kind of, I don't know if it's a message imploring folks to behave themselves in driver's hmm. meetings, but you know, we see the pros beat themselves up and bring out a lot of yellows quite often and tear up cars. What do you say to a, a group that isn't necessarily as uh, well experienced as some of them as GT4 makes its debut? I think there's, you know, we do, and I think you use the right word. We implore to the people's better nacers and remind them that you've got, because of all the series going on, we only have one race. So you got to get it right the first time. You can't think to yourself, well, if I botch Saturday's race, I'll, I'll see how I do on Sunday. No, you got one shot at this. You're right before the IndyCar race on Sunday. You know, you're putting on a show and you don't want to, and we, we really do tell the drivers this because we've had a longstanding relationship with Long Beach. We know the crash fest that we had in 2015. None of us will forget that and i think what do we have 12 minutes of green flag racing out of 50 it was just something awful uh and we've never forgotten that and we remind people look track limits here no problem the wall will give you the track <laughs> limit you know it, it, you know things like that are self-disciplining but you don't want people ruining their cars and you want them to be able to be in at vir in two weeks and have a good experience and you remind them that you've got probably your largest in-person audience of the year and you have an opportunity for your sponsors, for everything you're doing, for your points, and you can throw it away with a bad move. And the other side of it, and we're also selective, we've actually turned drivers down for this race Ooh. that we feel don't have the um, discipline they've demonstrated in other times past by red flagging sessions. And I like that. We've actually we've actually said no to some folks, and uh, their names that you know, uh, and you would agree with the decision to do that. And it just it doesn't mean we don't like them or we don't like their money. Uh, it's the reality is this show is for everybody, and you can't you've got to in some ways as much as you can't imagine a racer ever checking his his ego out the door. He or she wants to win, but as it as it goes forward, you have to think about everybody there when you make that pass when you're thinking about it and you it's great because we have jack baldwin who was one at long beach we have you know who is the gt4 business manager jack can give people advice on what to do and then you have the style where it's like michael cooper tony gaples as you mentioned before too you've got james sophronis uh you know maddie i think has driven it in in the trucks I, I i don't recall what he's driven on the sports car side at long beach but again most of the people there ian james they're going to be able to tell people even like bob mccallion uh you know, they're okay. This is what you got to learn at this track. Certainly, Spencer knows that. Mark Clinton has raced it many times. So, I think we get a pretty good maturity level for maybe the newer drivers like Samantha Tan who are looking at it going, okay, this is the real deal. I don't want to mess this up at my home race. And uh, they're, they're really going to be focused. Let's talk a little bit, Greg, about the value of Long Beach to this SRO owned uh, series now knowing that over the years world challenge has uh, been or felt like maybe the co-main event at times. And I know there's often been a grand am ALMS. There, there's been a lot of endurance series that have come, but again, there have been years where based on the strength or weakness of those endurance series at long beach world challenge has felt at least to me, like it's really been one of the feature feature things being presented with GT4 now, again, maybe not the, the fastest cars that folks will have seen from the series, but 
knowing that with IndyCar seemingly in a place of strength, IMPS in a place of strength, what's your general mindset of where uh, GT4 America's this world challenge SRO product, where do you think it might fit in terms of value on the schedule and also maybe share some thoughts to open on the value it presents to your team owners and drivers and sponsors. Even if you guys aren't say the headlining part of the weekend. No, that's a heck of a good question. And one that it is, it's twofold. One, you don't want to ever, we exist for our racers. Then we exist for our fans and sponsors. And so we go where they want to go. Uh, and, and certainly they look at Long Beach as an amazing opportunity. And, and so it was very nice when the GT3 teams were not as inclined to look at street circuits and really made it clear they didn't want to go back to have the GT4 guys literally step up from seven or eight, you know, point non-points level people participating last year to 21 full point level people going this year shows you the interest on the GT4 side to do this, to stand out. And I know from the, I don't know, four or five new teams that are coming, this will be their first time there, they'll get sold too. There's something very special about Long Beach. And I love St. Pete. I'm an unabashed booster of St. Pete. Uh, but, you know, it is the second professional race I ever attended as a teenager mm. uh, in the second year of its existence. And and what you have to count that against is drag racing and, uh, you know, flat track uh, motorcycle racing, speedway racing. Uh, so you can't really call those professional as compared to, you know, going to Long Beach with early Grand Prix the second year ever. Uh, and, and so I think there's people recognize that that history and they want to be part of it. So in turn for our business and to speak from it strictly from a business standpoint, we want to continue to be part of it. We really appreciate the partnership and we recognize that cars and models change, manufacturer goals change each year, but our teams and drivers are what really want to participate in this. And, and believe me, if I could find a way to grow and bring other classes of racing, like our touring car guys, can you imagine TCR cars at Long Beach? Oh, my, you know, that could be fun. So uh, I would say for us and the SRO America uh, aspect, let's figure out ways we can do more with Long Beach, not less. Uh, that being said, there is also an economics issue that we have to be very mindful of. When we bring 100 cars out to an event, like we'll have at VR, like we had at Coda, that's much more cost-effective for us with our staff and team, and it makes more sense for our sponsors as well. So it's something that we have to balance of when you do the, I think, the important exposure level for your business by being an IndyCar event, that's important to us. And I I have said, and, and Jay and I have spoken about this on the IndyCar side, you know, I'd like to see us do more involvement with IndyCar. Uh, with our, whether it's, you know, with GT3, or I think it's quite likely to do GT4 and TC. Uh, I think you'll see more of that with us. Well, you broached my last topic, which was, will there be a, any part of an assessment you would expect this weekend during the GT4 on track activity to see if bringing out TCR content, uh, and I'm a big fan of the little buzz bomb cars like that uh, on street courses, because even though we're talking GT4 and not GT3, there's still a lot of V8-powered cars, big rumbling, very powerful machines. Those we yes. see frequently. Uh, I'm a big fan of maybe putting content in front of folks that they wouldn't normally see, so that's why I think something like TCR could actually be a really big hit on the streets of Long Beach if you think that could be a thing in the future. So if you can, maybe just give me a little bit on that, but the topic you just broached is one that's making my little heart sing greg which is ooh, 
could we get this relationship uh, back to where somewhat of what it was between IndyCar and World Challenge, oh, man, looking I, to, I, to co-promote you know, the, it. And I should say, I should clarify, it's not because there was a falling out, right? It's not because there were no, problems. There, there was an right. intentional decision within the paddock to say, hey, let's try and do more on our own. But, boy, I'd yeah. love to see sports cars and open wheel back together more frequently. I, uh, uh, you know, from your lips to God's ears, Marshall, this is my desire. And I, uh, while they were here in my hometown, uh, I, I, uh, I, you know, had a, you know, some preliminary conversations about that. It is something that we feel strongly about. And I think that there's opportunity on both sides. And I like it because, you know, having since Barbara finished today as a good good example, I can remember getting a fan letter and that's when we ran all the cars there and, and a guy had come out and yeah, he came for open wheel. He came for IndyCar, but he loved the sports car show. And as he said, even them little cars. And at the time it was the (laughs) TCB cars he was talking about, but he loved it. His kid had a great time. They just thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think that the beauty of sports car racing is we can recognize the brands. We can recognize the marks. And when you have something that is so diverse that, you know, we're very you know proud of saying that, you know, more sports car brands race with us than any other series on the planet. Uh, that remains true. And I like that from a fan standpoint, then where are the fans? Where are the big crowds? They're at IndyCar races. So why not have something where we can put ourselves there and tell the story? And I have gone on record saying, I think it was a mistake for us to do the dramatic switch off that we did with IndyCar. We should have had a more gradual and maybe more thoughtful way, honestly, the way that we've been reapproaching it in 2019 and 2020. So I think you'll see a gradual reapproachment as it makes sense for their business because they have Mazda, they have the different things they're doing. Uh, it's you know it's for them the same level of schedules and what things look like. So there's no there's no guarantees, but but certainly. I think it makes sense for the fans and I think our teams and drivers love it. My friend, happy, happy to hear the uh, ongoing thinking, planning and future diagramming that's going on within the offices there. And can't wait to see the GT four cars on track here in just a couple of days at long beach. Thanks for making some time, Mr. Gill off to long beach. We go. Exactly. We'll see you there. And Marshall, can we get, even without an endurance race, could we get a mini disco ball i mean if we don't have a full one can we get a mini one i I, you've just given me a reason to jump back onto amazon.com and see what else i can have ordered uh same day so i've got a job (laughs) to do there thank you very much and appreciate being part of the series with richard dean above the pits at uh, paul record glorious evening just before night practice first day of the lms preseason text richard again it's another spectacular display here from United Autosport. Multiple cars, multiple classes again. Um, this is some effort, isn't it? Oh, it's a, it's a spectacular display from the whole ELMS grid, isn't it? 18 uh, LMP2 cars and, um, was that, 42 in 41, total? I think, in total. One in total. It's, uh, and the, you know, the quality, the driver lineups and the, the teams, it's uh, whoever wins this is going to deserve it in any of the three classes now it's been a bit of an odd lead into this one disappointment i think you'd certainly acknowledge with the Le Mans entry just a single car for united despite 11 lmp entries across the aco entry what's your mood coming into this season um with regards to the Le Mans entry or with regards oh, to the it? elms season well every time somebody brings up the Le Mans entry um the mood's not fantastic because we got one entry because we because we won. 
which is an automatic invite, which means we didn't deserve uh, in we didn't deserve a, a second entry on merit. In this is the only way I can see it. I haven't had anybody point that out a different way. That maybe I'm looking at it a different way. So that's disappointment on the Lomon entry. Nobody's quite explained it uh, properly to me, or in a way I can understand. But what's my mood about the season? You know that it, it is what it is. You know, it's, we're not. It, we can only um, allow things we are in control of um, to to get the better of you. And um, you know, we, we've ploughed on in the preparation for this in the same way as, as normal in fact you know we've been trying to really dig a lot deeper there's, as you know in all of these categories there's very little margins that you're allowed to do everything's locked down in terms of homologation on the cars and regulations and there hasn't been much movement um, that we, we've been able to find so it's working away on the details which just takes time and um, you know that that's another slight irritation that you know, we had four months in Asia which we could have had four months in in Europe preparing for, um, but you know, it's, it's a big operation. And you touched on it earlier. It's a big operation for, from us, and you know we don't utilise, we, we don't cross people across uh, each of the different dis- disciplines. So the LMP2 team um, is quite is independent. They work quite hard on our development program over the winter, and we're we're really quite positive. And I think the first day of the test today has given us some encouragement as well. It's again star-studded stuff. It's good to see Alex Brundle back in the United family this year. We're Ryan Cullen in one of your LMP2 cars. Phil Hansen has made spectacular progress in your hands. Race winner twice at the end of last season. Uh, here with his two co-drivers for this season because we've got Felipe Albuquerque at the uh, test just for today, I think. And then he's off back to the States for Long Beach. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And then Paul DiResto, who'll be sharing the seat with Phil for race one. That's all well and good, but actually, the growth this year isn't in terms of the number of cars in this package. It comes with a step up to the WC, but it also comes with a step up for your business with a move to a much bigger facility. Yeah, WEC's a big thing for us, and um, we can't underestimate that, and it's looming pretty quick on the horizon now with... um, what are we away? Uh, July for the prologue, so we have to be geared up and ready and, you know, with duplicate kit and equipment, and we've got to figure out the staff, especially over that weekend at Silverstone, presents some problems, but, you know, we're, we're thinking far enough in advance and we're working away at it, a bit of head-scratching at the moment, but we'll come up with the solutions. So, yeah, the WEC is a big, big growth. We've got to get that right. I think we'll only get one go at that. We certainly can't make mistakes in the first year, and we intend to win races in that and, and the, uh, I guess the, 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 the obvious question to finish this one with is going to be about the plan for them on next year to take if you like the decision out of someone else's hands you've got to come back with success and you've got plenty of opportunities to do that this year in terms of the entries for Le Mans, is that what you mean? Yes, well, I mean, you'd like to, presumably. I think, you know, we, we get one automatic entry because of our WEC, and I would hope that we get an automatic entry because of all our participation in three cars in Michelin Mon Cup, two in LMP3 and two in LMP2. You would hope that the, that deserves one on merit, so I don't think anybody would be doing any, any favours by giving us two entries next year. I think that's a fair assumption, really. Um, let's hope the weather stays like this for the rest of the week. Let's hope that you and I have as few grey hairs as we've got today at the end of the weekend. Richard Dean for now, uh, good luck for the weekend coming. Yeah, thank you. With Roman Rusinov in the G-Drive Racing garage and 
course, reigning champions in the European Le Mans series, but there's a big change this year on a Exonaris. Exactly. So this year we will race on Arus 01. So what is Arus? Arus is a new uh, brand, automotive brand, who is making limousines. Uh, uh, the main presentation, the first uh, European presentation was in the Geneva Motor Show. So I think it's quite an exciting project for, for, our, for all of us because now we have Arus Zero one, which is a Russian car, we have a Russian team, so I think, uh, yeah, we have a good ambitions, we have good drivers, and I hope we can fight for a win again. It's a first step into motorsport from the Aris brand. I mean, probably known internationally most for being the state limousine of your president, Vladimir Putin, but this is a, a brand now with some international ambition. I think what is important to say is, uh, first of all, it's a good car, you know, yeah. so it's uh, probably a good competition for Rolls-Royce. Uh, and I believe uh, the worldwide will appreciate it. It's already appreciated quite a lot. But now we enter in the motorsport and I think what is the best for, uh, for uh, an automotive or automobile brand uh, it's racing. I think everybody did it. Uh, Bentley, Mercedes, uh, Toyota, Audi, you know, Ferrari, Porsche. So in the end of the day, yeah, for sure, the best association of, uh, of a new automobile brand, I believe it's, it's racing. And if we have R01 with us, that means they believe it as well. It's an Aero Zero One, and uh, in common with what we've seen before with Alpine as a developing and emerging brand, it's it is of course it's a rebranded Orica, but that's that's a good thing. It's a it's a car that you've won races and won championships in. It's the Zero One. What might we be expecting in years to come with a Zero Two? I think uh, first of all uh, we must prove that we can win races this year. I think it will be the first step to understand what is racing for them, uh, to see what, how, how good it is and uh, how huge the marketing will be in Le Mans. You know, I think the Le Mans is the main race, it's the biggest race in the world, half a million people coming. So yeah, it's a great event, it's a great, uh, it's a great brand, you know, I think, and I think everything is together now. Gidra Racing, which is quite well known in motorsport we won four championship in a row so we try to win another one and also it's never easy it's always very hard but yeah in the beginning year it's important to put everything together you know good mechanics good drivers good engineers uh, to work well in the pre-season and I think we did already quite an amazing job and we're happy that we're here with Arus you know so yeah it's great now, for our audience, tell us a little bit about the G-Drive brand. It's uh, from memory. It's uh, it's gas G-Drive, station. G-Drive is uh, is a premium fuel which is sold in gas gas from petrol station. We presented in Russia, in Serbia, uh, in uh, in Kazakhstan. So it's quite quite popular in Russia. We have more than one thousand six hundred petrol station. Wow. And G-Drive G-Drive fuel is a fuel number one branded fuel. I mean, hey, uh, it, it was ninety eight. Now we did 100. We have also G95. So yeah, it's quite it's quite popular. It's uh, brand number one. Also because of racing, you know, because I think we test we test we really test fuels on the LMP2 car, you know. So it's proven. So it's a very good fuel, even if it's coming from the normal petrol station. A race car can make the same lap time that with a race one. So I think it's quite important to say that. 
We've seen in recent years a number of Russian brands and Russian drivers breaking through into international European racing in particular. You've been around with us for a long time. You've got uh, your good friends, I'm sure, down at S&P Racing as well. Tell us a little bit about how much awareness of motorsport there is across, across Russia, and in particular, um, how much of an impact this kind of effort makes. I think, you know, what is important to say that uh, the motorsport start with the first Russian racetrack, which was Moscow Raceway, then we get Sochi. So I would say it's the beginning of motorsport. It's still not as big as we would like to have it, because it's, it's quite a, a difficult sport. But uh, what we're trying to achieve now, what we're doing now, it's already very positive. You know, I think we get a very positive feedback in world press about our zero one in in racing. I think, yeah, it's good. So now our zero one arrive in Le Mans. You know, brands like uh, Porsche, Audi, Bentley, everyone was doing it. You know, so I think it's 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 quite cool that we're here uh, with a powerful engine, and you know, we have uh, you know, I, I I like that it's not still not electric. I like that it's uh, <laughs> real motorsport. Yeah, but at the end of the day, G drive is premium fuel, so we need to burn fuel for it. Absolutely. So we love uh, cars with big engines, which makes uh, a lot noise. of sound, big noise, and a lot of uh, fire from the exhaust. So we have you as a championship-winning driver. We have the team as a championship-winning team. We have Arus as a brand-new brand to us internationally. But clearly, this is all designed now to stimulate interest and pride in this team across your nation and beyond. Uh, you know, I think... What are going? It's not what I have to say. You know, I would say everything was about G-Drive Racing and and me as a driver. So I think you are going to say okay about nations. This is a different story. I don't want to go with the politics or stuff like okay. that. So I think from our side, yeah, we're just happy to see the Russian flag everywhere, and I'm happy to see the Russian flag on the podium on my race car, and I'm happy to see a lot of uh, different Russian brand are present in motorsport internationally internationally I think this is the most important point and in the main race of the world I think Le Mans is the greatest event in the world not just the race it's the greatest event and National Geographic said it already absolutely but also what is important uh, that uh, we uh, say that uh, um, so I think what is important is to say that um, G-Drive Racing is really uh, present in motorsport from from long time, and we already build a very great image around uh, around G-Drive, around Russian team, and yeah, well, let's continue this way. Final question from me: um, You've been on the top of the podium many, many times. WEC here in the LMS, uh, I think you'd like to be back in that world championship and back on the top of that podium but there's a big step financially there too isn't there yeah for sure I would uh, yeah definitely we would love to do WEC I think it's a great championship yeah we need to sit down Let, let's do LMS in the great conditions and then to see if we can come back in WEC I'm already already working to go in Bahrain maybe in the end of this year so we'll, this will be already a good step so let's see if we can make it good stuff for now good luck this weekend with round one of the LMS coming up here at Paul Ricard's circuit in the south of france let's hope the weather stays well for us perfect thank you very much and that was inside the sports car paddock with our friends jeff brown greg gill richard dean and roman rusinov if you have any suggestions on guests we might have on next week or in the coming weeks be sure to drop me a note on good old social media and also for the topics that jeff and i start off with every week 
there's anything that interests you, anything you're curious about from an engineering race strategy setup, whatever it might be standpoint, more on the technical side, don't hesitate to send those notes in as well to myself and Jeff. And we will not only add them to the list, but we will look forward to marking them off and getting that discussion to you in a future episode. All right. I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening.